Hello everyone, and welcome to another instalment of Talking Intellectual History, hosted by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. I'm Robin Mills. This episode, we're very happy to be joined by Professor Jacqueline Broad. Hello Jackie, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> now Jackie is Associated, uh, Associated Professor of Philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and she's joining me at 7am her time and 10pm my time. So it's very possible that at least one of us is going to sound very, very tired indeed. <laughs> uh, Professor Board has published widely in the field of early modern European philosophy, and especially early modern women's philosophy and women's political thought. Her latest work is a two-volume edited collection of women's philosophical letters, entitled Women Philosophers of 17th Century England, Selected Correspondence, which was last year, 2019, and Women Philosophers of 18th Century England, uh, sorry, 18th Century England, Selected Correspondence 2020, both uh, with Oxford University Press. So let's talk about what's actually in those collections. Can you describe their contents, uh, how you put them together, and why you put them together? Sure. Thanks, Robin. Um, well, as the title suggests, these are collections of women, uh, the letters of women philosophers of early modern England. So the figures in the volume are, uh, volumes are Margaret Cavendish, Anne Conway, Damaris Masham, Elizabeth Burnett, Mary Estelle, Elizabeth Thomas, and Catherine Trotter Coburn. Um, so most people may not have uh, heard of these women, but um, you very likely will have heard of some of their correspondence. Um, they write to, to men who are well known in the history of philosophy, people such as John Locke, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz and so on. But also they write to lesser known figures who were nevertheless quite prominent in their time and, and, and forces to be reckoned with in the 17th and 18th century. And they include men such as John Norris, um, Henry Moore, Walter Charlton and others. So um, in terms of the content of the letters, my um, criteria for selection was, was largely philosophical interest. And by that, I mean their letters look at ethical topics, um, moral theology. Uh, they look at epistemology and metaphysics. And they also um, range uh, into philosophy of religion and occasionally um, observations about uh, politics and the lives of, of women um, and so on. Um, just to keep continuing on with my bare descriptive account of the letters, they also uh, include introductory essays written by myself. So the volumes start with a main kind of introduction that gives an overview of uh, the basic themes in the letters so that if you were wanting to teach for example, or if you're wanting to go to a particular topic, you can just specialise and just go straight to the relevant letters. Um, and I begin each chapter, each chapter is on an individual woman. So I begin with an introductory essay that tries to situate the letters um, in uh, the wider context of that woman's particular philosophy. Um, though you might not have heard of these women, the bulk of them did in fact publish works of philosophy in their time. Um, and so I try to relate the letters back to that uh, wider philosophy. Um, so you asked me why I put the collection together. <laughs> and so I, I suppose I had quite simple, modest goals, but then I also had a rather um, bigger kind of ambitious goal. So my, my simple, uh, modest goal was simply to bring them together and make them accessible and comprehensible to modern readers. Um, because, as you know, the letters of men, uh, especially in the 1970s and 1980s, we get several brilliant volumes of correspondence by male philosophers, well edited, well researched and so on. But there hasn't been as much attention uh, focused on women uh, philosophers' letters. And as a consequence, even though they're now available, like they might be available uh, online or they might be available um, in, uh, you know, um, databases that um, give us rare, rare books or um, manuscript archives and so on. They don't come with all the um, kind of baggage, editorial baggage that you need in order to understand what's going on. Um, I'm reminded here of an analogy in one of Locke's letters where he talks about um, uh, you know, how if you see people dancing on a hillside, but you don't have any music, you kind of think, what on earth are they doing? Why are they making all those funny moves? I think when you come to the letters of women philosophers, it can be a bit similar. You sort of say to yourself, why are they making those moves? Why are they talking about those, those debates and those people? And so the purpose of my editorial annotations is to give that musical soundtrack so you can understand why they're doing what they're doing 
um, to explain foreign words and um, to explain the debates that they're engaging with, to, to, to mention the authors and, and explain who they are and so on, because many of those authors and debates and books have just passed into oblivion and we don't uh, really discuss them in philosophy anymore. Um, but as I said, I had a more ambitious goal, and that was to show that there's actually sort of this well-established tradition of women engaging in philosophy at the time. Um, and if you bring all the letters together that have been scattered uh, throughout manuscript archives and that are in the works of the male philosophers, but you have to go scrambling through several volumes to find them. If you bring them together, something really interesting happens. You, you get this kind of holistic sense that women did in fact um, have contributions to make to the shaping and developing of philosophy in the period. Um, the men in response, because I include letters by the male philosophers as well, they engage seriously and critically with these women, whereas in their works, they might be rather hesitant to name them, perhaps due to reasons of social etiquette. They might engage with them, but they don't name the women uh, and they don't engage them as interlocutors, but they certainly engage with them in the letters. And women in their correspondences are also much more likely to um, be uh, kind of more original than they were in their, in their treatises, although their treatises are certainly highly original. But they then, you know, if they're writing to friends or colleagues, they're much more forthcoming with their ideas. And so you can see them shape and develop these mature ideas that later get brought to fruition in their published works. And I just think overall this helps to give you a stronger sense of women's um, collective input to uh, philosophy in the period, to bring all these letters together and see them as a whole. It sounds like there's two uh, two goals there. Um, your modest goal sounds like a pedagogical one, right? It's the yeah. one of um, providing, well, yeah, maybe you could speak more, um, uh, providing the materials for classes on uh, women That's philosophers. Right. What's been um, What's been your experience of that so far, of... Um, teaching early modern women's philosophy, do you do that separate to early modern philosophy generally, or is it incorporated uh, into the larger subject? Well, um, initially, when I first started teaching, um, and I was, I was kind of co-teaching with, with colleagues, um, colleagues such as Ray Langton and Karen Green, um, we did have our classes on um, uh, women philosophers alone. So, so courses that we would run, uh, I'm thinking in particular of one called Feminist Philosophers, and that were, they were devoted entirely uh, to women's works, although we would discuss men in tandem. My experience was that the students loved those classes and they were very well received, but they didn't uh, work in the long run so well. And I do think that was partly due to the fact that at the time, and we're talking about 20 years ago here, um, Classes that were devoted entirely to women philosophers were seen as kind of being boutique or being a little bit niche and not absolutely essential to doing a major in philosophy. That would kind of be peripheral, something you would do just out of interest rather than as an essential part of a philosophy degree. And so they, those classes tended to get small enrolments and they were quickly cut. Like if there were ever any austerity measures that went through the faculty, they were, they were sort of lost along the way. Um, so I found it more beneficial to actually... Um, Run uh, you know, to, to, to introduce students to women's philosophies as part and parcel of um, courses that deal with philosophical themes or philosophical topics or philosophical traditions. So I have at the moment a, a unit on history of philosophy, the emotions. Um, in the past, we've looked at the Cartesian tradition, where, of course, you're looking at uh, women philosophers in relation to a male philosopher, Descartes, but you nevertheless uh, can run with uh, a number of um, classes devoted solely to women's ideas, you kind of get them in by stealth, if you like, because you, what you're looking at is topics and themes and ideas that anyone would be interested in uh, doing a degree in philosophy, but you just happen to be looking at those themes through the eyes of, of women philosophers. So these letters could uh, be introduced in courses uh, such as that, and um, part, part of the, as I said, part of the um, reasoning behind the introduction was to try to give people a sense of, well, these are the letters you can go to if you want to talk about mind-body interaction uh, and, and, and include some, some text by women on that topic. Um, you won't be able to get all the sources you need uh, from looking at women's letters. Obviously, you might want to go to the wider context and the treatises as well. But 
um, that was that was part of the rationale here behind these works. They could be taught. It's fascinating. And then the other goal sounded like it was um, was the other goal to sort of enrich the subject further by having an inclusivist approach to the study of early modern philosophy. Maybe you could say a little bit more about what you mean. You certainly mentioned you used the phrase in the introduction, an inclusivist approach. Uh, I wonder if you yeah. could say a little bit more about that. But it sounds like it was about uh, it's more than a gap filling exercise. I can hear the fusty voices, you know, the, <laughs> uh, maybe aren't, aren't uh, expressed out loud, but I have heard in corridors now and then who sort of see this as being a gap filling exercise. Why is that wrong? Why is this a, uh, an enriching exercise that is worth our time? Um, well, yeah, that's a really good question, Robin. And um, I always like to hear the fusty philosophers' um, <laughs> thoughts articulated out loud because I'm sure that many people, uh, well, maybe not many people, but several people do think these thoughts, you know, like, oh, okay, so we're just filling in gaps here and we're looking at these minor figures and, uh, you know, uh, this is not really um, what historians of philosophy as a whole uh, should be uh, looking at uh, because these were just simply... Um, minor voices in the early modern period and they're not going to uh, really tell us um, much more that, than we already know. Um, but as, as you say, yeah, I, I don't see this as a gap-filling exercise. And I think that if historians of philosophy really think about their objective, um, and um, I know we differ in terms of uh, what we give primary importance, but I think most historians of philosophy will tell you that an objective is to... Um, to look to those uh, ideas and arguments in these historical periods that may still hold some contemporary relevance today. Of course, they had intrinsic worth too. They have intrinsic value in, you know, uh, for discussing in their own right. But they, they might also have this in instrumental value. They might give us some kind of insight into current philosophical issues. I'm thinking here of work that's been done, for example, by Philip Pettit on Republican liberty, this historical conception of liberty now um, prompts us to think very differently about um, that divide between positive and negative liberty and, um, you know, helps us to think differently about um, fundamental issues to do with freedom. And, and there's many ideas like this in the early modern period, um, ideas that we've almost lost um, the sense of, you know, a, a concept of generosity, not as giving liberally to others, but rather um, honing one's self-esteem so that you only value those things that depend upon yourself. The women write a lot about generosity. They write a lot about disinterested benevolence and certain concepts that could certainly be of value to ethical philosophy today um, that don't uh, get much of a look in anymore. But um, I think that, um, you know, if you value um, philosophy as a kind of uh, search for truth or uh, well, perhaps less grandly uh, as, as wanting to evaluate ideas and arguments, you shouldn't really care like who is giving those ideas and arguments. Historians of philosophy, I think, should be much more like the judges of Areopagus, you know, uh, from ancient Greece, who would always evaluate arguments in the dark so they wouldn't see people's faces. They wouldn't see this earnest pleading on people's faces or they wouldn't see these theatrical hand gestures, you know. They would just evaluate the soundness and validity of arguments. And so I think that, um, I think that we shouldn't care uh, that it's women giving these arguments. Uh, we should just be looking to the value of the arguments themselves. As for that value, well, as I said, women look at these um, kind of uh, different ideas you might also think, although I kind of um, reject the idea, but you might think that women bring a different voice uh, to philosophy. And I'm deliberately um, deliberately echoing Carol Gilligan's work from uh, the 1980s here, where she uh, did an empirical study that showed that when you look at women's um, moral theorizing, they actually kind of tended to, um, empirically speaking, theorize rather differently to men. They thought more in terms of relationships with other people and they saw those relationships as being governed by care and concern and not abstract principles, not principles like justice and so on. And you might think that when you come to women's philosophy, you can see a similar uh, kind of um, uh, difference in their way of doing philosophy. And there's some truth to that, but I reject a kind of view that women have their own kind of essentialist kind of, you know, um, 
hardwired approach to philosophy. I think they can be as different among themselves as, as the male philosophers are amongst themselves. Some of them are materialists, some of them are dualists, some of them are high church Anglicans, while others are low church and latitudinarian. They can be very different. But I think the point to take away here is that they do bring different perspectives at least, even if they don't bring distinctively feminine or female approach as the kind, you know, the kind that Gilligan was identifying, they still bring different voices and different um, ways of conceiving of even just the nature and philosophy, uh, function of philosophy in the period. So they do, and this is something that comes out in the letters, they do see philosophy as not just being this abstract theoretical enterprise, but also um, a kind of exercise that has therapeutic purpose, that can transform one's life and help you to be, be um, you know, happier and, and a better kind of person. So, um, so that's that's what I say to the fusty, <laughs> fusty <laughs> naysayers, Robin, who think that this is just a gap-filling exercise. You just add women and stir, and nothing much changes. Um, I'm not convinced that that's true. I think there's uh, intrinsic value in looking at their work, and there's also this instrumental value that any historian of philosophy um, would be willing to embrace. I think. Brilliant. Um, let's delve into some of the themes that emerge uh, from uh, reading the two volumes. Do you have any sense of, their, of uh, female uh, women philosophers having a certain persona, or what could you say about them having a certain persona and status? Um, is, there a, is there a persona of a woman philosopher? Is it exhibited in any of these uh, uh, thinkers that you've collected, uh, correspondence um. you've brought together? Yeah, well, look, that's a good question too. Because uh, I know um, several of my Australian colleagues, um, thinking here, Stephen Gokroger, Colonel Condren, and Ian Hunter, have looked at this idea of the persona of the philosopher in their own work. And and what comes out of their work, I should say, is that there are multiple personas in this period, not just one uh, persona. I think that same is true of women. Um, so when you look at the letters as a whole, I think a persona does emerge, but I'm not sure that it's really a, an accurate uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, I'm not sure that it accurately captures what we could consider to be a female persona of the philosopher because it's rather um, dismaying in some respects and perhaps rather distorting of what these women themselves, um, you know, their approach to what their approach to philosophy was. And I, I say that because um, you often see this uh, self-deprecation and um, uh, submissiveness in the correspondence. You can see that, I should say. And why is that? Well, because there are often these mentoring relationships going on between men and women in the correspondences, um, and they're unequal relationships. So I'm thinking in particular, Henry Moore and Anne Conway had a correspondence. He, of course, a highly educated Cambridge um, professor, and she, uh, being a woman, of course, was not uh, university educated, um, and she was rather young. She was only in her late teens when they started their philosophical correspondence course in Cartesian philosophy. He was teaching her philosophy, basically. <laughs> and the same is true of Masham and Locke, uh, although it's not so much a, um, a kind of philosophical education uh, that's going on in the correspondence. It's more of a, a correspondence amongst friends. But likewise, he met her when he was 47 and she was about 19 or 20. So there's this vast disparity in um, status, like educational status, age status, and so on. And so when, often when you see women raise their their questions it's usually oh I know this is a silly question or I know nothing about philosophy but here I go here's this devastating critique uh, that completely destroys a key aspect of your philosophy so the persona there is one of you know um that you get criticism by stealth you know like I'm just going to uh I'm going to criticize your philosophy but I'm going to do it within the bounds of acceptable social etiquette between an uneducated woman and an older much better educated man but having said that, you, when you do look at um, these criticisms, um, they're, they're not completely a one-way exchange in which women are learning from men and taking on board their views and adopting them as their own. They still maintain this critical stance and they still put forward their own views. They're often encouraged to put forward their own views, actually, and to articulate um, their own ideas. And as I said, also, if there is persona of the woman philosopher and I don't think there's just one persona so I'm kind of saying this in a qualified way they do often turn back to that therapeutic purpose behind philosophy 
the, the way in which philosophy connects to everyday life and isn't just this abstract enterprise for the elite, for those that have a particular jargon or are well-versed and well-initiated in a particular vocabulary. Something you see today, actually, you know, there is on the one hand is this kind of philosophy that goes on that can only be accessed by an elite minority that have, um, you know, they have this, um, you know, uh, highly elitist education or um, indoctrination in a particular way of speaking and so on. The women see philosophy as a, an enterprise that should be accessible to everyone and it's relevant to everyday life, to helping everyone to become happier and, and better. Um, so that comes out. But I don't think that's necessarily distinctive of a female persona of the philosopher. I think it's just something that's part and parcel of philosophy in the period. You, you find it not just in the women, but you also find it in surprising places like in the work of John Locke, who today we consider to be an epistemologist or a metaphysician. But of course, um, you look more carefully at his work, you can see his most famous works, particularly the essay concerning human understanding, were written to bring an end to disputes, to help people be satisfied with the knowledge that they have and that they can have, and not to be forever dissatisfied and forever arguing and wrangling about things. So even, even the philosophers that we think of as these more um, kind of traditional epistemologists and so on also have this conception of philosophy as having this practical purpose as well. Um, so... So those are my thoughts on the persona of the philosopher. There isn't one. There isn't one distinctive female persona of the philosopher. There are perhaps many that just to be found in these correspondences, as there are in the men. Yeah, that's fascinating. Is there are, are there any instances within these uh, philosophical correspondences of uh, the people writing to each other going beyond the social etiquette, as in going beyond the um, self-deprecating female writer speaking to the older established male authority does anything go to, as in once um, it becomes clear that maybe this is a an equal battle yeah oh does anything yeah change? there is for sure there is for sure so off the top of my head well first of all i should mention the fact that there's actually uh this mentoring relationship between two women uh, that i've included in my correspondences that's Catherine Schroeder Coburn and her niece Anne Hepburn um Arbuthnot who was much younger than than Coburn and much uh less well versed in philosophy um did you see this kind of transition over time where um you know uh, uh Arbuthnot's asking simple questions like what is a contradiction and 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 you know Coburn replies but then later on she starts digging in her heels and she starts um, defending some of the mystical authors that she's reading and, 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 and saying, well, actually, they make more sense than we give them credit for. They do give a role to the truth and to reason um, that I hadn't previously acknowledged. And, and so that's interesting to see that transition, that development in her thinking as she gets more confident and more mature as an older woman. I'm talking about the niece here in response to Coburn. Um, there's also, I've also included um, a correspondence between Hicks and Astell. Sadly, I had to cut Hicks's Hicks's side of the correspondence because it was so verbose. One letter was 15,000 words and I just, you know, I was acting under constraints from the press. I couldn't, I couldn't include too much, but it was incredibly verbose, but it gets really nasty. He starts questioning her chastity. He starts these ad hominem attacks on her. He can't believe what she's saying. She sounds like a heretic. She sounds like a Quaker. Um, and, and what's all this nastiness about men in her works? People don't like her calling men blockheads and coxcombs. Can you stop that, please? And, you know, so it does, there are some instances where they do definitely go beyond the acceptable social etiquette. But that may have been because Astor uh, didn't really have any, uh, you know, high social standing. You don't find that in the letters to Margaret Cavendish, for example, someone whose views definitely um, uh, would have been regarded as, as heretical, if not downright atheistic in the period. But there's this polite veneer uh, throughout the correspondence, for example, between her and Charlton, her and Glanville. These are, are figures in the um, Royal Society that she wrote to at the time. They're quite differential. They're almost almost sort of asking for her patronage, I think. And so uh, in that context, we definitely don't find them going beyond the bounds of social etiquette. Um, but nevertheless, still um, espousing this 
spirit of open inquiry and saying, <laughs> saying things that they, um, you know, want her to, to comment on. That's fascinating. Um, you mentioned earlier, I appreciate that, that you've been a bit sceptical about the idea of sort of grouping people together, but are there any particular themes or questions that seem to be of a special interest to the philosophers you brought together? A sort of religious topic seemed to come up. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is interesting because um, you might ask, well, why is it that, uh, you know, until now we haven't had this terribly rich uh, history of women in philosophy? And um, there are many reasons for that. And, and some of them, obviously, have to do with sexist prejudices of past historians. You know, hundreds of years ago, women weren't thought to have spoken with any authority or to have um, had any sort of philosophical views worth mentioning. But another reason is that, um, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, there's this purification of philosophy where it gets demarcated from religion. And it's true that these women do um, discuss a, a huge number of religious topics in their writings and, and the letters are reflective of that. We're looking at arguments for the existence of God, for example, in the correspondence between uh, Conway and Moore, they discuss uh, why it is that God created matter at all, if only to, um, you know, if only to make our bodies the cause of sin and so on. They discuss um, why it is, and here I'm thinking of the correspondence between Norris and Astor, why it is that God causes us pain. If God is the cause of all sensations, why are we often afflicted with um, pain and suffering? So there are, are theodicies being discussed in the correspondence. And obviously they, 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 they want to discuss their religious duties, their religious obligations, and that comes up uh, also in their correspondence, perhaps most uh, forcefully in the writings of Catherine Coburn, who's trying to develop this theistic morality, which nevertheless gives quite substantial ground to human reason and to natural human uh, traits and, and the natural foundations of morality. Um, so religion is... Uh, a prominent theme but you know when you look back at the male philosophers as well when you look at people like Locke and Hobbes a large part of their philosophy is religious too it's just that we have the benefit of many uh, generations of scholarship on their work that helps to distill and crystallize the philosophy and bring it out of that religious context and explain it to us in, in secular ways that would appeal to everybody um, and the work for women hasn't been done in that respect we haven't seen People try to pull out their views on personal identity uh, out of their um, theories of resurrection and judgment day, for example, whereas that's been done for Locke. Um, and uh, so there's still work to be done on these women to make, to bring out those themes, to bring out those, what we would now regard as distinctively philosophical themes and, and try to pull them apart uh, from their religious ideas, which of course can't always be done, but it can't always be done with regard to the male philosophers either. You distort their philosophy if you take it out of that religious context. So there has to be a balancing act here. Um, so, so yes, um, the themes, as I said, other themes are mainly to do with ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, um, some political theorizing here and there, and certainly some reflections on the lived experience of being a woman, that, that comes into the correspondence too. Brilliant. Um, I'm gonna exploit my interviewer's uh power here and yeah. ask you to um, tell our listeners a little bit about two philosophers that I'm particularly interested in. So Damaris Cudworth-Masham in the first volume and then Catherine Trotter-Coburn uh, in your second volume. Um, so we can start with Masham first then. Can you introduce her to us? Tell us a little bit about um, her place within the history of early modern philosophy and maybe what her correspondence uh, tells us about her. Sure, thanks. So Damaris Masham was writing in the late uh, 1690s, early 1700s. Um, she was born in Cambridge. She was the daughter of Ralph Cudworth, Rafe Cudworth, who was um, at the time quite a prominent and well-respected philosopher theologian. He was a member of the group uh, known as the Cambridge Platonists, who were studying uh, Plotinus, um, other ancient philosophers, and connecting uh, those views with the views of modern-day philosophers, especially Descartes. So she was born into this highly uh, rarefied environment at the University of Cambridge, Christ College. Um, she would not have been educated herself, but she nevertheless went on to write two philosophical works, the discourse um, uh, concerning the love of God, a response to Mary Estelle and uh, John Norris. Um, and she also wrote occasional thoughts in reference to a virtuous uh, or Christian life. 
Um, both works were mistaken for the works of Locke. That's not accidental. Um, she was uh, close friends with Locke. And in fact, one Locke biographer said that she was destined to be closer to Locke than any other human being. Locke, of course, is one of our most uh, well-respected, famous um, philosophers of the early modern period. Um, and it's still discussed today, obviously, and first year courses in uh, throughout our philosophy. I went to a talk only just a couple of weeks ago on Locke on the self and so on. Um, so a very famous philosopher. Um, people didn't know the extent of um, Masham's relationship with Locke until these letters were um, uncovered. Um, you may know the story, but when Locke died, um, his, his estate was split up. And so there was a Masham moiety that went to um, Masham's family. He lived with Masham in the final years of his life. And there was another half of his estate that went to his relative, Peter King. Peter King uh, manuscripts survived and were well-preserved and, and uh, went into what uh, became called the Lovelace Collection at the Bodleian Library. And um, the Masham uh, moiety, unfortunately, fell into disrepair and we've lost many items from that. I think that's where Locke's side of the correspondence went. So we have Masham's letters to Locke, which have been well-preserved and came to the Bodleian Library in the mid-20th century. Um, and this unveiled to Locke scholars um, the extent of Masham's uh, relationship with Locke, uh, her friendship with him. Um, on the other hand, we do not have Locke's correspondence. It's very likely it was eaten by rats. <laughs> perhaps um, as there's some report that it might also the paper because paper was so scarce in the 18th century which is when the estate fell into disrepair the paper might have gone to kitchen maids to line pie trays you know so they wouldn't stick to the tins so that's unfortunately and sadly that's very likely where Locke's side of the correspondence went in my um, in my collection, I include a couple of draft letters from his journals, and it's such a shame we don't have his letters because he's a beautiful letter writer, as is Masham. So we have these letters from Masham. What do they tell us about her and about her philosophy? Well, um, they they tell us uh, a bit about her epistemology. That's her theory of knowledge about. Um, how she initially um, held to the views of her um, Cambridge Platonist colleagues, her, the, the people with whom she was closest in her early childhood, her father, for example. What was that epistemology? Well, um, generally speaking, uh, if you look at the early letters between her and Locke, they're debating um, a man called John Smith who put forward the view that man, uh, because he spoke in terms of men, but I think he meant human beings, um, in his highest state of perfection, has um, has engaged in these kind of moral meditations and moral contemplation. He's led a wholly virtuous life, and he has searched for truth using his natural reason, and that has enabled him to reach this um, pinnacle uh, in which God uh, then enlightens him. And Locke, who had this uh, wholly naturalistic conception of philosophy, thought this was um, an extravagant uh, opinion, Not that this author was not, in fact, articulating a theory of knowledge, because knowledge comes to us through the exercise of reason. It comes to us through ideas obtained through sensory experience and then reflection upon the mind's operations about those ideas. Um, and so he thought that this was actually a species of enthusiasm, which at the time was a term of abuse, which meant uh, it was an extravagant religious opinion not based on reason. So Masham, you see, uh, comes in in the letters to defend her Cambridge Platonist colleagues and say, well, actually, you've misunderstood Smith here. He's not saying that the metaphysical and contemplative man has, uh, you know, has knowledge only because he's... Um, directly, divinely inspired by God. Rather, he has this knowledge which is consistent with reason. And once he's obtained this perfect moral state, God assists him through this divine revelation. But it's not like it, it, it's um, in contradiction to reason or that it commits him to any, um, you know, uh, uh, inconsistencies, rational inconsistencies. So you see her um, defending herself. You don't all of Locke's responses but we think that he says in the end we've come to some agreement and that's really interesting that he says that because um, he, he, he must have accommodated his views to some extent to meet Masham's objections. Um, so we see epistemological themes in Masham's correspondence later on she sounds much more Lockean 
especially in her correspondence with Leibniz. Um, but we also see uh, these uh, ethical themes that I've been talking about, a focus on practical ethics. And we see this lovely dialectic in Masham's correspondence with Locke um, between wanting to um, maintain this radical detachment to worldly things, including your friends, including your wealth and your health and, and things like that, that we do value, um, versus um, embracing friendships, leading a, a life um, in which you are good to others and that you interact with others um, because that's what your, your um, physical makeup compels you to do. That's what, what you, you're kind of born to be sociable in a sense. So you see this dialectic going on in Masham's correspondence with Locke, usually half jokingly, but sometimes with reference to Stoic philosophy, which is interesting. She read, read a number of Stoic authors. And I, I find that aspect comes up again and again. It also comes up in Coburn's letters. Um, and I find it interesting because, you, especially given that we're holding this interview in the midst of a global pandemic, Robin, and, you know, you see these women at the time grappling with terrible tragedies, the death of a sibling who went to India, the death of a child who died of smallpox, um, the death of people from the smallest wounds and, and, and illnesses that today would be cured instantly through antibiotics and so on. So they develop these philosophies to cope with this terrible grief and, and they appeal, you know, it's not just, they don't just appeal to philosophy as kind of um, frivolous self-help manuals. They look at the arguments and they, they theorize and they evaluate the, those arguments to come up with a way of living that is tolerable and that can help them deal with these uncontrollable circumstances. And you see that in the letters quite a bit. Is there some link between um, the correspondence between Masham and Locke and then Locke's uh, chapter added on of enthusiasm yeah. is there supposed to be a relationship there could you say a little bit about that yeah well definitely um so so Locke wrote this wonderful work the essay concerning human understanding and while he was living with Masham he, he did several um editions I think he went up to the fourth edition and in the fourth edition uh he added this chapter on enthusiasm and scholars think he added it because he was under a lot of pressure at the time a kind of storm had come out against his work and he was being attacked on all sides basically for, for showing um kind of sympathy and toleration towards dissenting religious groups um he was accused of being a Socinian, which was a terrible term of abuse in the period um, he's accused of being an atheist and so on. And so he adds this chapter, and people think it may have had a political motive to show that he was, in fact, quite critical of these philosophies that um, espoused that you could have knowledge through direct divine intervention. And I'm thinking here in particular of Quakerism, uh, the view that uh, God um, speaks to me through the light of Christ in, inside me. Um, and so his chapter is quite scathing of any kind of viewpoint that allows that God could be the father of contradictions, that um, that you know things by direct divine inspiration that could be any number of absurdities or contradictions. He says, no, um, God has given us natural reason. That's the touchstone for knowledge. And um, anything that contradicts reason cannot um, come from God. He's given us indirect assistance by virtue of our natural reason. So that's what that chapter says, like, put it simply and crudely that's what that chapter says and so um i see that this does have a connection with his early um uh, um correspondence with uh Mashin, where he's he's explaining the same things he's saying you know if you do think you're directly inspired by god as john smith this cambridge platonist says how do you know that that's not a delusion how do you know that that's not some evil spirit tricking you and anyway, these things come up in the um draft letter to Mashin that we have in Locke's journal Similar ideas are put forward in um, in the uh, chapter that he adds uh, to the essay, where he's basically saying the same thing. How do you know uh, that this so-called divine revelation is not a delusion? Um, we, we can't be using this as the touchstone for knowledge. We have to go back to reason and what is compatible with reason and rational proof and demonstrations. Um, so, so that's there's definitely, uh, you know, the correspondence is, as I've said, are of great interest for what they tell us, um, not just about these women's philosophies, but what they also tell us about the shaping and development of the male philosophies too. Brilliant. Um, so I want to ask about Catherine Coburn, who has a more, uh, she has a relationship with Locke, but a little bit more uh, from a, 
Uh, removed. F- yeah. yeah f- one step removed. Um, yes, yeah, so could you tell us about her? What's interesting about her correspondence? Where does she fit into early modern English philosophy? Yeah, so that's a good question. She she is fascinating because we have um, for Coburn we have quite a body of work. She published um, two volumes of works in the in 1751. Um, actually, posthumously, I should say, because she died about 1749. Um, but yes, early on, Coburn was known as a playwright, but in about 1701-1702, she published a defence of Locke. She published it anonymously. She was defending him against some of those criticisms I was mentioning earlier, the attack on his ideas for being irreligious and immoral and Socinian and atheistic and so on. She was defending him. Um, so uh, she she um, developed a kind of reputation for this work. Locke approved of it. He wrote to her. He sent her money. He was uh, desperate to find out her identity. He found out through another woman um, he was in contact with, Elizabeth Burnett. I include the correspondence. Uh, They have a very fascinating philosophical correspondence too. I've included that in the first volume. Um, And so in later life, um, Coburn went on to marry. She had a number of children and this preoccupied her for some time. But then in the 1730s and, and later, she started publishing again. And again, she was writing Vindications of Locke. She was also defending Clark. But scholars more recently are most interested in the fact that she really did develop her own independent moral philosophy, a philosophy of moral obligation, one that was based upon, as I said before, the natural and sociable characteristics of human beings, their reason, their sociability, and so on. Building that, um, to, to say that even atheists could be virtuous on her philosophy. Um, they simply had to know the essential difference of things. And of course, God had given them, she was religious, so she believed God had given them the capacity to discern the essential difference of things, the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, and so on. Um, and uh, she builds this philosophy, she builds it in correspondence. So she builds it as she's um, discussing these matters and explaining them to her niece, with whom she had a correspondence that spanned over decades. Um, she builds them in correspondence with a man called Edwin Law, who we don't know much about today, but certainly was very prominent in the time as a, a lock, um, you know, a lock scholar, um, and someone who was uh, sort of arguing, well, no, no, uh, we get our ideas of morality through an association of ideas. None of us are naturally benevolent. Um, we only we only choose to be benevolent because of the private happiness that comes to us when we are kind to others. You know, people praise us, people reward us. Um, and she, she, so you, there's uh, some really interesting letters at the end of the um, end of my second volume where she's uh, debating these ideas with law. Um, so, so Coburn, Coburn hasn't had her day yet. We don't have an edition of her uh, writings. We do have um, Patricia Sheridan's superb. Um, a collection of some of her most important works, like the defense of Locke and a few of her really pertinent philosophical letters. But um, we don't yet have the, those works that she published, which are quite voluminous. In, we don't have edit, editing, um, sorry, we don't have critical modern editions of those works. And there's really a need for that. It's like I said earlier, I just kind of wonder what's going on. Many of the debates um, that Coburn was engaged in have passed into oblivion. We have very little understanding of who the principal figures were, who the anonymous authors were of certain works and so on. But they're becoming of um, interest to us because we can see in a number of those debates the development, the birth of utilitarianism, for example. I mean, um, uh, the, the views I was explaining about law are, are kind of connected to that. They're very interesting in their own right. And, you know, scholars have looked at a very narrow a number of figures in the early modern period in detail. You know, it's Locke, Barclay, Hume, Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza and Kant, like seven key figures. And they've ignored these smaller peripheral figures that, that Coburn is discussing frequently in her correspondence. And there's much to be learned from them. So I think, um, I think Coburn's yet to have her day as a philosopher of the Scottish Enlightenment. She was English, but she was of a Scottish background and she was in Aberdeen for many years. So I think she's going to be of interest to to scholars of the Scottish Enlightenment in particular. Brilliant. Um, one of the points about social etiquette you make in one of your introductions is about the nature of public debates where if it's a f- known to be a female author, 
male readers or male respondents won't engage publicly. Mm. So there's a whole yeah. sort of, um, sorry, maybe you can pick this up, but there's sort of a, a whole level of debate that you, you won't know about if you're looking, if you're looking at printed text only. But if you're looking at correspondence, you're going to get the sense of these conversations are um, ongoing. Could you say anything about that? Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know a great deal about the etiquette. Only what I read from the women philosophers and so on. Margaret Cavendish says that she thinks that Henry Moore, who she kind of attacked, I think that's a fair enough word, she kind of attacked him in, in one of her works, The Philosophical Letters. Um, she... I said that he was reluctant to engage with her because um, she was a woman and no man will dare set his name in print against a woman. I think it's probably more likely he didn't want to engage with her because she was a duchess, <laughs> an extremely powerful wife of the Duke of Newcastle. Um, so there would have been a kind of social status thing going on here, not just <laughs> her gender that was at issue. Um, but it's funny because in his correspondence with Conway, he says, this is Dan Conway, whom he, uh, you know, was... Uh, engaged with discussing Descartes' principles with, um, he says, you know, you, don't, you shouldn't be afraid of um, quitting your breeches to, uh, you know, taking off your manly trousers to address this woman, like pretending to be a man, because you yourself are a woman. Why don't you respond to Cavendish? And she never did. Um, in fact, she left only one um, very short work, a very philosophically rigorous and precise work called The Principles of the Most Ancient and Modern Philosophy, doesn't seem to engage with Cavendish anywhere, although certainly engages with more crit very critically. But um, uh, so there was that kind of barrier to women, uh, to men citing um, women in print. But you know, if you look carefully, they do engage with them. Certainly, Joseph Glanville, um, who wrote to Margaret Cavendish, he included verbatim his responses to Cavendish in his published works. So. You know, he didn't name Cavendish. She just called her um, kind of a correspondent that he'd had. Um, but he definitely um, responded to her criticisms about the existence of witches, incidentally, witches and demons. She was against it. He was for it. And of course, there are witches. She was uh, much more sceptical. Um, and uh, so, so, so we find passages where he's engaging with her. Ralph Cudworth very likely called, was uh, having Cavendish in mind when he um, was critiquing those hylozoistic atheists who um, have a view that matter can move of its own accord. Uh, it sounds very much like he's echoing Cavendish's works there and likely read her works. Um, they were in the libraries at Cambridge, so it's likely he had um, access to her works. Uh, and, and I can think of a number of other instances. John Norris, for example, elaborates on why it cannot be the case that mind and body are connected through a sensible congruity in his large essay uh, of the ideal and intelligible world. And of course, there he's just extrapolating from his correspondence with Mary Estelle. So there's engagement. There's just not explicit named engagement with women. And that, that has perhaps uh, also been one of the factors that's led to women's invisibility in the history of philosophy is that um, there was some compunction, there was some hesitation to, um, you know, uh, diss a woman <laughs> in print at the time. It just wasn't polite and it wasn't the thing to do. Oh, great. I mean, these are really interesting collections and I've really enjoyed sort of uh, reading about how, you know reading exchanges as they develop uh, and it's been really great talking to you Jackie let's end with asking about what you're working on next oh well I have um I've got the letters out of my system you know I've been working on letters <laughs> for about 20 years since I first read Ruth Perry's article that said um that this correspondences between male and female philosophers seems to be a minor literary genre in the period so got that out of my system and now I'm looking towards some of those ideas um, that we have uh, lost uh, the sense of today that I was talking about earlier and in particular I'm looking at um, cognate ideas to women's rights in the early modern period and by cognate ideas I mean related concepts concepts such as worth nobility excellence and dignity that have a connection with rights and writes um, language and theory in the early modern period, but that we don't give much credit to. Um, it's thought that the history of feminism is a rather short one, that it began in the first wave in the late um, 
19th century, or perhaps it began uh, a little earlier with uh, Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women. Woman. Um, but of course, if you look earlier, you find the language of rights. You also find a theory of rights it's throughout um, writings in the 17th and 18th century. Women engage with that, but um, feminist authors, and I don't hesitate to call them feminist authors, I know that's controversial to some people who think it's anachronistic, but you do find women defending women, men defending women too, I should say. Poulain de la Barre, French Cartesian, was one of the earliest um, to, to put forward a theory of um, equality for women and men. Um, and so um, I think there's a much richer history of feminist thought to be found if we don't narrow ourselves to looking at women's political rights, but rather have a kind of broader conception of what feminist philosophy could be and, and has been. It's perhaps in the very the broadest sense, it's, feminism is a theory that women have been disadvantaged in some way, whether that's by denying their rights or by denying their value and worth, their nobility or excellence. Um, it's also um, a kind of moral theory that, that, or a prescriptive normative theory that there's something wrong with that disadvantage. And then there's usually a practical component that um, we ought to do something about that. We ought to rectify this disadvantage and this inequality in some way. And so you find, um, you do find a lot of um, arguments for women's worth, um, arguments that say that it is... Um, you know, it is wrong that we deny women their worth and excellence and nobility and dignity. Dignity is a huge theme uh, in the 16th and 17th century in relation to women. Um, and then this evolves into, of course, defences of women's rights. But the feminist call for reform is there before the right speak really takes off. And so, so that's what I'm looking at now, Robin. That was a, a long explanation of what is really just a project that has just started, that I'm working together with um, Marguerite Delorius at McGill and Deborah Brown uh, at UQ. I'm working with them on this project uh, to, to uncover a kind of new history of women's, um, women's rights prior to the Enlightenment period. That sounds like it's going to be really, really fascinating. I look forward to learning more. Uh, so, Professor Broad, thank you very much for your time. This has been Robin Mills for the Talking Intellectual History uh, podcast. I hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks, Robin.